Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the CogniCast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week, host Gotti Shaban talks with the ever-fascinating Gene Kim, and Gene and Gotti cover a lot of really remarkable territory in this episode. Everything from DevOps and the Unicorn Project to the invention of the magnetic disk. But before we jump into the episode proper, I'd like to remind everyone that we are hiring engineers and project managers, product managers, technical writers, technical onboarding and education specialists. So if that sounds like something that might interest you, reach out to us at jobs at Cognitech.com. But for now, sit back, open your ears and your heart and your mind to Gene and Gotti in episode 159 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is April 23rd, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Gadi Shaban, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Gene Kim to the show. Thanks for being with us, Gene. Gadi, so great to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. I've been thinking about this interview for a long time. I think <laughs> your expertise and enthusiasm as a DevOps technologist and enterprise software guru really intersects with us at Cognitect and now Cognitect part of NewBank. We very much have followed your work for years, and it's just great to be able to talk to you. Oh, no. Uh, and it's been an amazing thing for me to be uh, a part of the Clojure community. I went, remember going to the Clojure Con in 2017, and I've been an avid uh, consumer of and a fan of so many things in the Clojure community. And I, I have to tell you, it was actually a, a trip, something beyond my wildest dreams to be able to talk to Rich Hickey and kind of hear you know, even more about his views on things like the complected nature of software and philosophies of how software should be built. So it's been a really great, amazing year, couple of years for me working with Clojure, learning from the Clojure community. How, how did you get started? What was your first sort of point of contact with Clojure? <laughs> you know, I think it was about 2013. I was at a Velocity conference. I was sitting next to Mike Nygaard. And like many things that Mike Nygaard talks about, I understood maybe about a half of it. <laughs> and then he showed me <laughs> what he was working on at that time. And looking back, I mean, I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Uh, it looked like a whole bunch. It didn't look like code to me. <laughs> and it turns out that was Clojure and uh, Datomic. And you know, I, I finally was... I think it was around 2016 that uh, I was looking for something really challenging to do. This was right after the DevOps handbook came out. And I remember picking up the uh, Ruby reference guide by Matt's and you know, that was fun, but not hard enough. And I think it was in that moment that I wanted to pick up closure. <laughs> it's uh, something that really daunting. In fact, I remember one night I was reading the closure programming book by Chaz Emmerich, Brian Carper and uh, Christoph Grand. And I remember actually bolting, not out of bed, but it was like like in terror. It was about the the fact that in Ruby that strings weren't immutable, <laughs> and that there was a certain operation you could do. I think it was the the less than operator that not only would uh, concatenate the string, but it would actually change change something on the left hand side. Oh my god! <laughs> on the right hand side, <laughs> and that was so shocking to me. And I remember the first thing I did that morning. I woke up a little extra early. 
went into like program Ruby on a website and tried that one operation. And I was shocked. I was shocked <laughs> that this one operation actually changed one of the strings. And it was this feeling of like, oh my God, how many times might I have used that where I was unknowingly changing something I shouldn't. And it was like, literally, I was so scared that suddenly my interest in closure tripled in that moment. And, you know, thus began like about 60 hours of just trying to write my first couple of closure programs. I mean, without a doubt, the most challenging thing I've, thing I've done, I think, professionally, but one of the most rewarding because it, more than anything else, reintroduced the joy of programming back into my life. I mean, I think I went uh, more than a decade without really uh, doing anything of significance programming. And since then, I've, I found that I was able to do solve so many problems I really want to solve that I know I couldn't have done, you know, if it weren't for closure. So I have nothing but a sense of incredible gratitude for what closure has taught me. I, I've heard this experience as a categorical thing several times now, and I think it's it's worth mentioning that th- there's there seems to be a lot of people that uh, give up is not the right word, but at least have frustrations with development and the state of complexity or really the state of state in in programming and they'll retreat away from programming and then i find out that they've taken up closure and they found this joy and i I don't have that exact same experience but i was a pianist and i was looking to make money which is not done by playing (laughs) the piano and i ended up i ended up at one point writing oracle PL SQL as part of my job. And then I ended up stumbling on closure. And I remember that first little, like you said it was 60 hours, but for me, it felt like six months where I I was undoing the (laughs) years of Java and C++ exposure that I had. So I don't know if you shared that first span of time when you're exposed to closure was really confusing and mind bending, but kind of fun. (laughs) Oh yeah. In fact, I mean, yeah, I say 60 hours, but then plus about six months where there was this one problem that I wanted to write. It was, I was trying to generate a, oh yeah, it was for the DevOps handbook. Uh, I, I published on a repo the entire list of endnotes. And I heard from our editor that writing the index and the endnotes for the DevOps handbook took something like $10,000, which is like an absurd <laughs> amount of money. It's a significant percentage of the, oh, the cost of the production of the book. But I mean, I love it as a researcher, right? I mean, I love really good citations and I want to do a word cloud of the citations. And so the big problem was the IBIDs. So in you know, academic papers, you put IBID when you repeat the previous citation. And so all I want to do is write this very simple program to iterate through the list of citations and replace IBID with the last one. And I, <laughs> I, I, it must have taken hundreds of lines. I had automated <laughs> tests everywhere just to, just to, because I had so little confidence I actually knew what I was doing. And I remember I, it had been about a decade plus since I've written a recursive function. <laughs> and just even like, how do you think about this? Like, how do you actually do a transformation like that without modifying in place? I mean, it was, I probably asked five, 10 people, that question, like, how would you do this program? <laughs> just, uh, I just couldn't conceptualize what it would even look like. <laughs> Does that resonate with you? I, totally. <laughs> I, it, it, it's interesting that I think a lot of our, our listeners here have, have exposure to closure, but especially those who are, who have a lot of experience with closure, you don't necessarily remember those first few moments where <laughs> moments in the, the abstract sense, like really weeks where you're just trying to reframe how you think about it. And it, it, it's actually really a lot of fun. And that's, that's what's fun for me is programming in a live environment where you're not using uh 
dead text and then compiling it and then just crossing your fingers, right? You actually, you can actually test out the, that recursive function that you're writing. You can test it out and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you, you iterate and you move on, right? Yeah, in fact, and I would say like the, I didn't even know how to think about the problem, right? I mean, I, I, I would sit down at the keyboard and I literally wouldn't even know what to type <laughs> because you know, I, I couldn't imagine, like if you don't have uh, in-place in mutation, how would you solve that problem? A little funny story on this. I mean, the uh, light bulb moment for me, I actually got to ask Dr. John Launchberry. So he was actually part of the team you know, who worked on the Glasgow Haskell compiler. <laughs> and I was like, how, how would you solve this problem? And he actually wrote it on a whiteboard in one line. And it was just this aha moment. It's like, oh, <laughs> huh. like, okay, got it. I remember racing home and proving to myself that I could do it. And it did take uh, like an hour, but I think that's when I finally understood like uh, and started getting in the habit of writing things recursively. So that was a, a revelation. Just one of many revelations I've had learning in Clojure. I was really taken by the stories you were telling about producing, I think, your latest book, The Unicorn Project. <laughs> and the, you were pretty transparent about the the processes that, that went into the production of the book and also trying to understand whether the book launch was going to be a success. I don't know if that was actually your goal, but you knew through data beforehand how you were doing before the book was released. And I was wondering if you could if you can talk a little bit about that journey, because it, it's most people think naively that your work is done when you write the book, oh. but that's not <laughs> in fact the case. Yeah. So we had, uh, so this is what the experience report uh, that I gave on Clojure and Datomic was back in uh, 2019. And specifically, I would say the frame of that, you talk about like how many people shy away from doing certain programming tasks just because they knew kind of like problems that they would start getting mired into. And what I uh, really learned was that I actually had the same aversion to databases, that I have screwed up databases so wildly and frequently in my career that I found that was a whole bunch of things that I really wanted to do, but that chose not to do just because I knew uh, that most of my experiences with primarily MySQL were filled with uh, regret, frustration, <laughs> and, and, and anger. But there was a project that came up that for me really mattered, which was how do you make sure that we were kind of doing all the right things so that when the unicorn project came out, that uh, it would actually move in the marketplace. And, and just to maybe put some context, I mean, I the Phoenix Project came out in 2013. We did the DevOps Handbook in 2016. And so yeah, there's a lot of pressure as an author, right? Most authors, their second book, so this book, that was book number five, it tends to do a tenth as well as their first book, <laughs> right? So like very motivated to like uh, not be one of those. And, and so we had built a bunch of tools, some friends and I, one of them is Tom Limoncelli, who wrote the cloud administration book. We wrote uh, a lot of tools to create telemetry based on e-commerce sites. And so we get sales rank information. And so we had probably five years of information. So one of the things I had shared was just how many problems <laughs> that once I took that over that I had keeping that running and so forth. So you know, that was one element, but this other one was really about how do we make sure that we understand like uh, who are the people who are most likely to love the book, right? And a lot of it was triggering the memory of like, oh, hey, here's people who loved Phoenix Project. Here's uh, people who love DevOps Handbook and going through you know LinkedIn and, and Twitter and just using that to recreate the social graph and trigger reactions like, oh my goodness, yeah, right. I forgot, I forgot this person or this person. And so we're using it as part of the outreach efforts and, and so forth. And that was actually my first use of Datomic. 
And I think this fell into a category of difficulty where had I done it in my sequel, I just would have given up. (laughs) I think I'm smart enough to know that I'd never finish. And so it was just a, a revelation just to be able to put together kind of a quick schema, use closure to be able to start retrieving the data I wanted despite kind of rate limits and so forth. And it was just amazing that it was a pretty straight path to get from here's what I think needs to get built to, oh my gosh, it's actually running. (laughs) It took a couple of days to do all the data retrievals. But I could say this one, again, is like one of categorically, I can confidently state (laughs) that I would not have been able to do that without closure. And in this case, also Datomic, just because... I probably wouldn't have survived the third database migration. (laughs) Oh, right. You know, scribbling on the same stuff in a database is very similar to scribbling on a string, right? If you're blessed with a language that has mutable strings, I mean, the the problems are really the same thing. I remember I was doing this patient matching competition. Somebody had released a data set where you had to deduplicate patient records. You know, so I loaded them into Postgres and then start hacking and slashing through all the names to normalize certain things. And where there was an obvious error, I would just scribble it in place, right? But but then I would r- ask myself, like, oh, how did I get to this point again? <laughs> like, how far away am I from the original data set? And it's now too late. Got to keep moving forward. <laughs> what could go wrong? What did I do in the dead zone between 4.30 p.m. and 5 p.m.? But it's nice, and at least in Datomic, you can see exactly the commit history of what happened. Yeah, and it was just, for me, it was magical just to be able to do all that kind of information retrieval and analysis and just in this beautiful form and uh, then you know, be able to see the telemetry to say, all right, you know, are these campaigns working? And to be able to say, oh, yeah, we actually moved the needle. Yeah, we're moved up by an order of magnitude in the sales ranks and so forth. And yeah, I think you know, I think in almost any operation, it helps to be able to see what you're doing to get fast feedback on your work. And sure. yeah, so that was a huge aid in terms of being able to, as an author, right, get some confidence that you're going to kind of achieve you know, the goals that you set out to achieve. And I'm so happy that the conclusion of the story was that in the opening week of the Unicorn Project, we hit number two on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list for nonfiction books. So it delights me to no end that a book about technology and about functional programming and closure actually (laughs) managed to uh, hit number two. So, yeah, it was only for a week, but still, I think it was uh, great. Really, uh, that couldn't have happened without the ability to plan and execute and see what you're doing. It wasn't a surprise either, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's also satisfying too. I think some people might think it's underwhelming when the reality matches your proje- projections, but actually that's quite satisfying. <laughs> Very satisfying and for so much exceeded our uh, expectations. So that was a, a great way to <laughs> know that your work paid off. That's a great segue about fast feedback to the wider topic of of DevOps. Today is Friday, and we had a little discussion this morning at work about should you deploy on Fridays? And (laughs) I I was wondering what sets high-performing organizations apart in terms of how they release code into the wild. I think deployments Speed is probably one of the, one of many aspects. I, I was wondering if you can touch on some of those some of those concerns and dimensions of like how do large organizations excel? Absolutely. To your question about a no deploy Fridays, so I got to spend twenty three years studying high performing technology organizations, and since twenty fourteen, I've really been studying not so much DevOps in the 
tech giants of Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, but really how it's being used in large complex organizations across every industry vertical. And by the way, congratulations to you know the new home of Cognitech and, and the brains behind Closure. I think that's uh, phenomenal. One of the neatest research is really one understanding what high performers look like. We know they're deploying more frequently, they can get to production faster, they have better change success rates, they have a shorter mean time to repair when things go wrong, they have better organizational performance as measured by to what extent do they exceed productivity, market share, and profitability goals. We know that they're happier, but one of the most delightful findings was almost all of the technical practices, architectural practices, and cultural norms, and the metrics can be pretty accurately predicted just by asking one question on a scale of one to seven, to what degree do we fear doing deployments? Uh, one is we have no fear at all, we just did one. Mm-hmm. Seven is we have existential fear, and <laughs> that is why in our ideal world, we would do a deployment again, never. <laughs> That's it, we're done doing deployments. And I think to your point, I mean, I think in the ideal, right, uh, we're doing deployments all the time and there's never marked, they're uh, rarely problematic. And so you can do them even on Fridays. And I think the, the spirit of like no deploy Fridays is, well, if something would go wrong, right, why ruin someone's weekend by something that we didn't think about led to uh, some sort of horrendous catastrophe. So I'm not sure if I have a real hard stance or, or an opinion on whether you should deploy on Fridays, but it sure is nice to be able to do so if you need to, <laughs> right, and have it likely that it doesn't actually cause problems. I totally agree. And just to be clear, I'm coming down on the side where you should absolutely be able to deploy anytime without fear of ruining somebody's weekend or their social plans. Right. And by the way, one of the things that I was so delighted by the news when I heard, because some months before I had actually spoken with Renan Capaverde and Ed Wibble, who actually saw presenting, I saw a video of him presenting at uh, ClojureCon many years ago. And it was just impressed upon me so much just to what extent they care about developer productivity. They care about developer platforms and safety and speed production. And so I trust that those values are still there and that there's engineering going on to move the needle on those things because it really resonates with me as things that are so important for developers to be productive. To have this, to, the system catch you when it, when you drop something or when you, if there's, a, if there's a bad deploy, you can revert it quickly or you don't even notice, right? Right. That, <laughs> right, right, right. So Mr. Capaverde is, is he's head of our foundation team and he's head of this, the systems that, that are able to put into place these, the guardrails that allow us to move uh, quickly, but still confidently. And we don't really wonder when something goes wrong, we, we're not asking ourselves, is the code wrong or did something go wrong with the deployment itself (laughs) that's never the question it's always like oh something went wrong well that's the code's fault and we're going to go analyze it in one place but you're not wondering what the the boat that's scuttling your code from here to there if that sunk but that's a a huge amount of effort and i think i'm wondering from the research that you've done uh, over all these years is is high performance achievable by organizations of all scales or is there is there variation on either end of the of the size scale? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say pretty confidently that DevOps outcomes are possible in organizations of all sizes. And it doesn't matter what industry vertical uh, one operates in. It doesn't matter whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit. <laughs> in fact, I mean, until very recently, I would say none of that actually mattered. 
So there's a little asterisk there. It turns out that in 2019, for the first time, there was an industry where you were actually more likely to be a high performer, and that was in retail. And when that signal came out, uh, it was the first, uh, often people would say, oh, we can't do it in this regulated industry. We can't do it in that regulated industry. And it turns out like every industry was basically the same as a population. Retail apparently is different because of the retail apocalypse where, you know, if you don't have certain capabilities and you're competing against the e-commerce giants, you are in grave danger of going out of business. (laughs) So that's a little footnote there. And, And I think it's so clear that I think many organizations, when you're first starting up, you have kind of everyone cares about development and operations and security. And the trick is, you know, how do you do that as you scale? And then I think uh, we're now seeing so many data points that organizations are doing this at scale. I, you know, Capital One famously has somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 developers, and they're now cloud first, open source first, and showing that they can be as productive as one of the tech giants. And the tech giants are showing that they can do it with 60 to 80,000 developers. So yeah, I think it just shows that these outcomes are possible regardless of how big the organization is and absolutely acknowledging that it's uh, difficult to do at scale. I think uh, this is why I was so excited to hear the interview with uh, Ed Wibble some months ago. And uh, what I loved hearing is that, again, Ed Wibble demonstrating that he has high standards, he has high energy, (laughs) he has a a very great idea of like what it should look like in the large. He cares very much uh, about what things should look like in the small and that uh, he loves walking the floor. (laughs) And these are actually the characters of what they call a technological maestro. So this term is almost 80 years old, but I love it. In fact, had the state of DevOps research, if we were doing that this year, I think we would have definitely wanted to test that concept is that I think these are the things that are needed to create greatness, you know, regardless of whether it's coding or building a, a spaceship that takes us to the moon and back. So yeah, super important. Super important to have somebody, somebody who, who cares, who can, who can direct a, like a, a very wide organization. <laughs> I, I like that. I hadn't heard that term actually, but that speaks to me as a I'm an orchestra musician, and that and to have a maestro who's <laughs> able to to tell people, hey, we're gonna obviously we're all gonna play the same piece, but what speed are we gonna go? And that's right. gonna be orchestrated by one person. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, there's actually another term I was introduced to that I loved, and it's called Rabino's Law, you know, number twenty three. And uh, it states that if you have a dope at the top, you'll have or will soon have dopes all the way down. <laughs> and so I think uh, it goes back to the 1940s, this, this concept. And, but I just love that because it simultaneously explains kind of those experiences we've had where things are going so well, reinforced by whoever's at the top, or when things are going horribly, and it's because of the person at the top, <laughs> fully enabled by the person at the top. And I, I think it just so much really matches my own experiences of one of those critical factors that that you need. Interesting. So a meritocracy and the division of concerns, that's important, but it's also important which way the boat's pointing. There's some relevance here around closure. A lot of people that come new to closure will ask in the closure forums, hey, do you know about such and such library. It looks like it's it has a lot of stars on GitHub, but it doesn't have any commits <laughs> for four years. Is this like bad? Can I use it? And that that speaks really to well, it speaks to a number of aspects. But one of the aspects is compatibility. You make something and then it you don't break it for your users. Totally. And this is another one of those just huge aha moments I've had 
just being in the closure community. So, you know, it's 2019. I, I'm in a great mood. You know, talk's done. And I'm, I'm sitting in that kind of main area. And Rich Hickey's there. Stuart Halloway's there. And you know, I just want to you know, learn more about Rich Hickey's sensibilities around coupling, right? It's so clear that one of his superpowers is tell when there's inappropriate coupling of concerns going on. And on one hand, it was like uh, very funny and curious that to hear him talk about like how offended he is when you know, I asked him, well, like, what are some markers of coupling that's going on that might be problematic? <laughs> and you know, he described like when you see in the Git commit histories, someone changing things across like every file, right? And he says, it's because someone's being very cavalier refactoring with their IDEs, right? And my first reaction is, well, gosh, I'm not sure if all of us have the, have the ability to be able to sort of like imagine it in their head and get it right the first time. How do you avoid doing that? But he then went on to describe like what happens when that's taken to an extreme. He described uh, this graph that was actually generated by Hercules. And so imagine it's like a cumulative flow diagram that shows like when code was written and then what happened to it over the years. And uh, he showed me the one for closure and across like 13 years, basically code is written and then it's like strata in a rock, right? This is, it's yeah. still, and everything's layered on top. And then, and I'll, I'll never forget the way he said this, look at some, at some of these other, you know, UI frameworks. It looks like someone took a wedding cake and then smashed it against the wall. <laughs> and there's a, a link to a tweet that with a picture I took of, uh, I, I think it might be Alex Miller showing it on his phone. <laughs> and it, <laughs> and it, the aha moment is like, oh my gosh, no wonder things, break in libraries because the code that was that you know ran behind it is gone <laughs> it is the destruction of code that's happening and i thought it was just a brilliant visual depiction of kind of that notion of you want accretion but you never want breakage right and like how can you do that when 50 percent of the code in any given year is gone three years later and, and so that notion of stable or complete libraries really speaks to me and and now i have like no tolerance and endless amusement for what's happening like in famously in the NPM ecosystem where if you don't compile say something in two months <laughs> you're probably it's so gone. far behind you'll never <laughs> compile again and I think it has some serious consequences and so I had mentioned that I worked with a friend of mine Dr. Stephen McGill and we got access to the Maven Central not only the download logs but all of the data within it so that we could see what the transit dependencies were and a significant problem is what happens when vulnerabilities are found in a certain component and how long it takes for it to propagate to everybody else in dependency graph. And I just love to paint kind of two extremes, right? Imagine like things like a dependabot where you can say it opens up a pull request every time there's a new version. And there's probably one population of components that you can always merge that in and your code will work. So you can upgrade easily, fearlessly, <laughs> you know, almost cavalierly, right? And always stay up to date versus ones that you're always so afraid to update them because everything will break. And I think there's something, the benefit we get in the closure community is that we can migrate very easily between versions with very little fear. And there are other ecosystems where you can't, and that has just horrendous potential downsides. I'll give you like one concrete example, I guess, in the Java ecosystem. We actually looked at the migration behaviors between library versions and you have things like Spring where you'll either you'll get stuck. You're at three, very few make people make it to four, very few people in four will make it to five. Where you have things like I think it was Joda time, where you know you actually saw migration behaviors anywhere to anywhere, showing that there was probably very little risk of breakage. And so I think there's a real virtue and benefit if we can actually have those 
kind of assurances of you can upgrade without being broken. A lot of, I don't know, there, there might be a little bit of ideology in the developer community valuing churn itself. The life, the amount of churn that hits a GitHub repository is considered a source of vitality of the project and not really a source <laughs> of risk. If I see high churn for a project, you hit a GitHub project and the last commit was 26 seconds ago. I mean, I get scared. <laughs> in fact, well, that's one of the hypotheses we tested in the state of the software supply chain uh, report is do the number of stars or forks in GitHub or the number of downloads you get on Maven Central have any correlation to anything we care about, whether it's a mean time to remediate a security vulnerability or mean time to update trends or dependencies. And it was no correlation whatsoever, huh. which is actually kind of problematic because the way I, my mental heuristic is when I have a problem and I go shopping for uh, a component, I mean, usually I look at stars or forks, right? And apparently, you know, apparently that is actually a totally meaningless. Um, totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> but I mean, you can look at things on the, the opposite side of the churn uh, scale, like the Linux kernel itself. And um, that has humongous amounts of stability because of, r really because of the technical maestro there, Linus Torvalds, mm -hmm. said, never break user space. I, I think he probably used a little more colorful language than that. <laughs> but, but, you know, it. I think fundamentally c compatibility is a choice that an author needs to make. And sometimes you make mistakes, uh, you make design errors. But you can always choose to, if, if you can't fix them compatibly, you can fix them by making something new, but leaving the thing that you wrote there. Again, I don't know if there's this analogy with the mutable string here again, but, you know, changing the thing with the name in a non-compatible way hurts. <laughs> And my fondest hope was in is in like say ten years, right? Those sensibilities <laughs> will be, and those values will be integrated, you know, more into those mainstream ecosystems. Because clearly, life is better when you don't have to deal with uh, things randomly breaking because things are, people are being too cavalier <laughs> with uh, exactly what you said. I wonder if uh, one of the interesting things about the NPM community is uh, the size of dependencies is just really small compared to to other programming language dependency chains. And I wonder if I wonder if we can get to smaller dependencies, because I mean, I, there are certain virtues of smaller dependencies in that there's less surface area to break. But, you know, there's a lot of other challenges like assembling smaller dependencies into <laughs> aggregates and dependency graphs and then deploying them and keeping them up to date with security vulnerabilities. But I don't know, just to throw out a prediction, maybe in five years, the average unit of deployment granularity might be a lot smaller than we're used to today. Here's hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's a. By the way, one of the. I think I, I remember this tweet about the npm apocalypse, where the length of the npm. What, what is it when you npm install? <laughs> the the time gets so long that by the time you finish, there are all the dependencies have actually been updated. <laughs> you, to, <laughs> you can't actually reproduce. Oh, no. <laughs> so you have to keep running in a loop until, right, right. <laughs> until you get to a fixed point. That's great. So I hear you're about to set forth on a phase of conference organization, I think, next week. And I was wondering if you wanted to, to talk about how much grueling work goes into putting together these large conferences. Oh, yeah. It's actually like one of the funnest things I get to work on each year. So I've been running this conference called the DevOps Enterprise 
conference since 2014. And so we are uh, heading up to event number 13. So the two that we did last year were virtual. And so that was uh, one of the most insane learning <laughs> experiences of my career, like uh, six weeks before the June conference, we had to learn like, uh, what, how do you run an online conference? And I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm so uh, proud and pleased with the way they went. And we had like 2000 people there, 30,000, 33,000 Slack messages in 10 days. Wow. I'm sorry, in three days. So the free Slack tier is 10,000. So that means we're rolling over messages within a day. So I think it was just a really, I'm really so happy with the way that turned out. And so we were running on a platform that a friend of mine, uh, had built uh, Patrick Dubois, who actually coined the term DevOps back in 20, 2008. And so it was amazing to work with him because you know, he'd spent about six years doing services that supported live TV. So think like the voting platform say for say American Idol. And uh, kind of his, one of his many amazing piece of advice was only do live if you really need danger <laughs> in your life. <laughs> and so, so he had to step away from that. And so that left us in uh, January trying to figure out, okay, how do we fill this Patrick sized hole? <laughs> and so I reached out to uh, Arnold Brasseur, Plexus on Twitter and his team at Gaiwan. And so he's also, you may know him because he runs the, um, wrote and runs a Slack Clojurians log and the Couch Test Runner. And so it has been so fun to actually watch him work. Another technological maestro, he's helping us pull off and run the two online conferences. Asked him to uh, help build some more automated video editing tools so that we could reduce reliance on external video editors, mm. where it's basically you pass spreadsheets back and forth and you say, no, not like that, like this. <laughs> like, so like often 30 minutes before a conference, videos are still like not ready to air. <laughs> and so you know, the, we want to more enable ourselves to do that editing and help extend this uh, video library. So it's just been an amazing experience watching him and his teamwork, the way he kind of orchestrates the efforts of many. And uh, I got to tell you, this is something I really care a lot about. I mean, <laughs> it's very important to me that things go smoothly. And we actually had a launch rehearsal, I think about three weeks ago, where we actually re-aired the October conference and on a platform that was uh, rewritten from the original TypeScript that Patrick had written. And so it was awesome. I mean, it was just uh, a lot of you know, issues had come up and it's, on the one hand, it's great because you want to see them in rehearsal, not in production, sure. but it was just uh, to see the dynamic when a team works for the first time together and can demonstrate that it's good at solving problems and that we actually solve more problems simultaneously than we could in the past. I mean, it was just a very confidence inspiring experience. So you know, I'm having a lot of fun and it's just been just a treat beyond words to be able to see to work with Arna and uh, see what his team can do for something that I like the Unicorn Project launch, care a lot about. <laughs> That's great. Definite, definite shout out to, to Arna for all the great tools, open source tools that he's put out for, for years now. I definitely use the, the Couch test, test Runner in my daily activities too. Same here. Uh, so yeah, some of it's been great. Some of it's been like watching uh, Matesh struggle with the idiosyncrasies of FFmpeg, which <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> I have dealt with some in my time. And all I can say is, uh, thank goodness it's him, not me. <laughs> and I'm grateful. <laughs> Hearing somebody who's actually using this stuff in production is, is I mean, it's always interesting. And it's interesting that you've actually used Clojure and Datomic. And I think Datomic probably has a higher learning curve than uh, than closure in some respects, but to see that you like got it into production and you used it successfully at least once, I mean, that's always ripe for, for discussions. So, Hey, in fact, I actually used it again. I had to migrate like about 
850 videos from YouTube to our own platform. Mm -hmm. And it was, I used Hodor by uh, Tiago Lucini. Okay. And so it creates these visualizations of what the schema looks like. What what is Hodor? Oh, here, let me show you. I actually wrote a little importer of all my home movies over the years that imports it into, like it uses FFmpeg to parse the metadata out of the videos and then Uh imports it into Datomic. And I wanted to, I kind of wanted to normalize all the codecs that were being used in like videos from 2008, 2009, where the standards have have changed. And so I, I took all my, it's just a crawler that goes through all the movies, runs FFmpeg to extract metadata and then scuttle it into datomic so i could say like how many movies are encoded with h264 versus whatever else <laughs> standby just okay. because i really care about this and i've just got to spread the love for this uh, i'm going to share my screen so i saw this is the the thing that made me brave enough so it's this incredible tool where you write these kind of in this dsl and it automatically generates these Oh, cool. Right. And so I, I couldn't get this working again. <laughs> that was using a JavaScript widget, but you can actually generate a data viz thing that just renders out a PNG file. It is effing amazing, right? And so you kind of, that's like for specs, but you basically write them in this like really lovely DSL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I could actually save it, evaluate a form, and it would render out kind of the new thing. But yeah, what I wanted to show you was that it's like one of those problems where I didn't actually know what the schema would look like. Is it a video belongs to a playlist, belongs to a YouTube, but they also belong to a conference. And then you got to get in data from sketch.org, right? And then try to match that to the authors and whatever. And it's a huge schema, but it's like, it kind of, I want to actually make, uh, play what the diagram looks like over time just to show how I was playing with, does this belong to that or that belong to this? And ultimately probably about 80% will go away, but just not to be feel so constrained by mm. imagine if every one of those schema changes resulted in a migration that could have like <laughs> done something terrible sure. if i was doing that in active record I, I mean i would have screwed myself so badly pour the concrete once if you pour the concrete right, right you want to <laughs> uh, avoid it for as long as possible so right but how do you do that when you don't even know like like even what the entities are so it was just a, that was a magical experience of using again would not have attempted to do that in a database, if it hadn't been for Datomic and the confidence of like knowing that it's you can move between schemas relatively fearlessly, does that resonate with you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I do a lot of my work in Google spreadsheets before I ever write down any of the code, and yeah. I find it much easier to like move around things. Like, I'll write out method signatures and function signatures and what they take, what they return, and just, like, play within a spreadsheet, and then the code writes itself. But it's the same thing when you're designing, like, a database schema. I think you want to figure out the relationships of entities to each other and then see if that fits the the domain model well, and then... And only then do you put it in the do you put it in the database or load it or migrate or oh totally and so I mean I would say I I, I did very much the same thing just thinking it through in a diagram uh, and then like every you know two months my understanding would change and to be able to move some stuff around without actually causing disaster and and regret was you know amazing to me anyway it just uh, <laughs> this is uh, something that was really neat I, I can't imagine 
doing that in, in something, as you say, that involved concrete hardening. Do you mind if we put a link to this in? Tell you what, let me just email it to you and okay. uh, yeah, for sure. That'd be interesting. When you see me, am I mis totally thinking about the world wrong or does that actually resonate with your own struggles? <laughs> is it just me that uh, struggles with things like this or is it? No, is not at me? all. I think like the, it's again about this live environment. It's you really want. Yeah interactivity in your tools you don't want to have dead files that you have to compile and then go through some rigmarole to to figure out if it's what you mean you really want like some dynamism some fluidity you want to you want fast feedback it's again yeah. the fast feedback story i think it's all related <laughs> yeah in fact, in fact i mean uh, just I'll, I'll play what it would have felt like i used active record very happily for a decade and i can almost play act what it would look like it's like i think it looks like this and then i hit rake migrate <laughs> And then I scream and then throw up <laughs> and then cry and then try to figure out how to recover from that. <laughs> not just me, right? No, not at all. It's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't want, you don't want the thing to go wrong before you get feedback about it. You just want to, you, you want to understand it before it goes wrong. So I don't know. I mean, I think the having, having your environment be connected to your editor is really important and that that tool that the hodor that you were showing looked very it looked very interactive um, yeah here just because um actually i because i'm such a believer uh, i feel like it could improve your life too it's so flipping cool I, I mean i can't imagine i can't imagine like doing it any other way so here's the schema and then i should be able to just do that and Boom. There it is. Wow. <laughs> right? So you can modify, cool. change your schema. It now shows oh, yeah. Up it just changed. And... Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, just to be able to think through changes. Yeah. So in Datomic, attribute definitions themselves are entities. And so you can add things to them like doc strings. You yeah. can add default values. You can add arbitrary metadata. So we had a lot of projects that I worked on. We had a lot of attributes about the attributes. We had a lot of information <laughs> on the schema itself. And we use that just to, to generate documentation. It would literally just output an HTML page or nice. output stuff like that where entities on a visual diagram connected to each other super powerful <laughs> yeah but, like how could you how do you go back to the old way after living life like that <laughs> that's awesome so when is the devops enterprise that'll be uh may 16th to the 18th which i understand is about 30 days away so uh every day is starting to count nice we'll definitely put out a plug for that too uh, <laughs> right on well gene thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to to talk to me it's been a thrill and a, and a fanboy dream of mine to talk to you for for a while <laughs> so uh, thanks again and I, I hope to see you maybe at a closure conference in the future ah uh, yes well i'm so ready for uh real events to come back i mean conferences have changed my life I'm, i owe so much of my career i think to conferences and holy cow i think everyone's ready for real conferences to come back and by the way thanks for having me on and this keep up all the amazing work and say hi to all my friends at uh new bank and cognitech definitely will thanks gene
You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Gene Kim, whom you can find at www.realgenekim.me. Our host this week was Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past on Twitter. And at the risk of repeating myself, we are hiring engineers, project managers, product managers, technical writers, and technical onboarding and education specialists. So if our journey sounds exciting and interesting to you, reach out at us at jobs at cognitech.com. Our episode cover art this month is by me, Russ Olson, and it includes a photograph by the Flickr user, not sure how you pronounce this, F-D-E-C-O-M-I-T-E. However it's pronounced, it is a great photograph. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio with a tiny bit of help from me. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The main theme music is by Newbank's own Otto Nascarara, uh, also known as Nasca. You can find Otto's music on Spotify, Deezer, and Apple Music, and you can find links in the show notes. I'm Russ Olson. Please stay safe and healthy out there. It's been a long, long road, and we're not quite there yet, but we are getting there. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.